join me for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today. God, we thank you for each and every person who took the time out of their lives and their schedule and their busyness to set this aside for you. Um, God, even if our motivations to be here are impure, um, Lord, we're grateful that you brought us here. So we ask now as we open your word, God, that you'd be the one who speaks, you'd be the one who moves, you'd be the one who convicts and draws and teaches. You'd shove me and the distractions of life and the burdens of this week out of the way that we'd hear from you clearly. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible, now is the time to grab one of those. We're going to spend most of our time in Acts 26 this morning, but we're going to start in Acts 21. If you don't have a Bible, there's a blue one right in front of you, somewhere nearby you. Grab it from your neighbor or it's right in front of you. And if you're in that, we're going to start on page 775. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, uh, if you go out this exit when we're done, there's a stack of Bibles on the table. That's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word of God. We want you to know that what we say around here is in our own opinions. It is in our own thoughts. It is in our own ideas, but it comes from this Word. And so uh, we believe that Word will change your life. So grab one of those on your way out, and that's our gift to you. In the year 2001, a couple ladies by the name of Susan Basala and Maggie Debelius wrote a book called So What Are You Going to Do With That? And this book is a guide for recent graduates on how to find a job. But it's not just a guide for anybody. Right? It's written directly to people who have gotten a Master's of Arts degree or a PhD. Because what they discovered was is that traditionally those who get advanced degrees like PhDs are always thinking that eventually that will end up with them teaching in a college or university somewhere. But what's happened is there are now more people with advanced degrees than there are teaching positions. Okay, so a large number of people have gone to school for years and years, and they've been learning and studying and earning these impressive degrees, and then they're faced with this question, okay, what are you going to do with that? And for all of their intellect and all of their intelligence, they, many had not considered that plan A just might not work out. And then what do you have to show for it? See, there's a lot of life that comes down to, to action, a lot of life that comes down to return on investment, a lot of life that comes down to this question, what are you going to do with that? Last week was Easter, right? The, the day set aside that we celebrated when Jesus defeated death and rose again. And we talked about in this room last week everything that the Jesus' resurrection changed. How he now gives us a hope that can't be taken away. That our sins can now be forgiven. That he, uh, by his resurrection, has become our greatest need, our greatest answer, and even our greatest threat. But you see, all of that just remains these kind of pleasant ideals if we don't do anything with it. Because as impressive as it is, as mind-blowing as it would be uh, that their master had just raised from the dead, there remained a really pertinent question to Jesus' disciples. Yeah, Jesus raised from the dead. Now, can you just go back to living a normal life? Right. He says no. He doesn't think he can, right? Can you go back to living a normal life? Or will what you have seen and what you have heard and what you experienced and what you know now change everything about you? Hey, for the last six months, we've studied the book of Acts together as a church. And we've seen their answer to that question, haven't we? We've seen it. Peter, James, and John, they just couldn't go be fishermen again. Matthew couldn't be a tax collector anymore. They, they couldn't go back to their old lives. They couldn't go back to their old way of looking at things. They saw and touched and listened to and ate with the resurrected Jesus. And they're going to spend the rest of their days telling everyone they could about that. And so today and next Sunday, we're going to be wrapping up our series in the book of Acts. And those 
two weeks, I want us to look at how Paul's story comes full circle, and I want us to wrestle with the same questions. What are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with the risen Savior who died for us? What are we going to do with the resources of the Holy Spirit in us? What are we going to do with the mission that's been given to Christ's church? Because it'd be a shame if we all got PhDs in the book of Acts and then looked at each other and wondered what we're supposed to do next. The vision is for the story to continue with us. So for the next two Sundays, we're going to close out this book the way Luke does. We're going to zoom in on the later stages of Paul's life. And we saw, we last saw Paul a couple weeks before Easter, standing before the philosophers in Athens and brilliantly telling them who Jesus was. And Paul's life from that moment in Acts 17 continued on much as it had in the chapters we studied before. He just continued traveling. He traveled from city to city. He went to Corinth and then to Ephesus and then back to Macedonia and Greece. There he went to Troas. And while he's there, he feels compelled by God's spirit that he needs to go to Jerusalem. But in all those places that Paul goes, it's the same story on repeat. It's the same scenes playing out. Before he gets to the city, God goes in front of him. And when he gets there, uh, he, God blesses his message. And Jews and Gentiles both believe in Jesus and surrender themselves to the hope of the gospel. And churches are planted and disciples are made and success was tasted. But at the same time, in all those places he went, there were people who hated him. Most of the cities, it was a group of Jews who thought that by preaching Jesus' love to all, Paul was speaking against the Jews and their traditions. In the city of Ephesus, it was a group of silversmiths, right? And this group had made their living producing and creating these shrines to a false god. And the more and more people who gave their lives to Christ, the less and less people there were that worshipped that god. And so he was cut into their pockets. So they started a riot to run him out of the city. And man, listen, that was the trend of this guy's life. He'd go into a city and at great personal risk, share the good news of Jesus with people. And many, the response was so diverse, many would give their lives to Christ. And oh, Paul, just huge deal of gratitude for coming and sharing with him their one hope. And many would hate him because they perceived him as a threat. No man other than Jesus himself in that time was more loved and more hated than Paul. And towards the end of Acts, he sets his sights on Jerusalem. And this is much like what Luke tells us about Jesus and his gospel, that there came a point where Jesus set his sights on Jerusalem and nothing was going to stop him from getting there. And the, all, the whole way there, Jesus is telling his disciples, when I get there, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be killed, but this is why I came, I must go. In a very similar way, in Acts 20, we see that Paul is convinced, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and people began to warn him, people began to plead with him, don't go, there's too many people there who want you dead. But he's not able to be deterred. On the way to Jerusalem, they stopped at Caesarea for a short rest because travel that day was awful back then. And this is what Luke tells us happened. In Acts 21, we're going to start in verse 10. Paul and his companions are in Caesarea for about a week to take a break. And here's what happens. Verse 10. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul to not go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. So this guy, Agabus, comes down and he basically tells the group, well, you go to Jerusalem, guess what's going to happen? Paul's going to be arrested and handed over to the Romans there. 
So everybody who's with him, these are all his travel companions and people who've ministered with him for years. These are his closest friends. They're, they immediately try to convince him not to go. And apparently it gets emotional, right? Because Paul asked him, why are you all weeping about this? Right? It shows you how intense this conversation is. They're begging with him. They're pleading with him. Do not go. But how does he respond? Why are you breaking my heart? Why are you, my closest friends, trying to talk me out of this? I'm ready, he tells them. I'm ready not only to be bound, I'm ready to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. Because it's simply going to take more than the threat or even here the guarantee of future imprisonment to stop Paul. Because he believes that God wants him in Jerusalem. And he believes that by going there, he's going to get an opportunity to spread the fame and name of Jesus. And by going there, he'll get an opportunity to do exactly what God has called him to do. And so if he has to be bound or if he has to die doing it, he's good with it. Now think about that for a second before we jump on the story. This stronger response silences those who's with him. He's not going to be talked out of this. So they would leave it in the Lord's hands no matter what happened to their dear friend. And what I'm interested in is this. What gets you there? What would it take to get you there? What would it take to get you to the point where there is no cost that you wouldn't pay for the name of Jesus Christ? What would it take to get you to the point where not... Listen, not that you endure suffering well, you sign up for it. You raise your hand and volunteer for it. I'm going to argue this morning, it's not as big as we think. I'm going to argue by the time that we're done today that it was something that Paul experienced that's not unique to Paul. In fact, it's something that most of us in this room have already experienced. But I'm not going to answer it fully right now. Go ahead and turn to Acts 26. It's on page 779 if you've got one of those blue Bibles. And while you're turning, I'm going to fill you in on what happens in those five chapters. Okay, we're going to give you a flyover of, of Paul's life in those five chapters. He makes his way to Jerusalem. And a few days after he's in Jerusalem, there's some Jews from Asia, where one of the places he'd been out preaching, that recognize him. And they create this huge scene. They start screaming to everybody who listened to the temple. This is the man that goes everywhere preaching against our people, preaching against our law, and preaching against our temple. Now, if you want to get first century Jews riled up, check those three things off the box. And you guarantee yourself a riot. Right, and that's what happens. They, the crowd gets immediately worked up. They grab Paul. They drag him from the temple. They take him outside the city. And they start beating him. And their intention is to beat him to death on the spot. Well, for once, the Roman Empire's paranoia came through for somebody. Right, part of why Rome ruled for so long was that they were so paranoid of an uprising and rebellion. And so if there's any sniff of one, they would snuff it out aggressively and immediately. So they placed soldiers all over their occupied territory. And these soldiers were trained that any kind of uprising, any kind of riot, any kind of mob gathering could eventually turn into bad news for Rome. No matter what the start of it was. So whenever they would notice people rushing to a scene or, or hear a disturbance, these Roman soldiers came and they came fast. And this is what happened for Paul. As they're beating him, the Roman soldiers come running in. And out of fear of these soldiers, the Jews jump back and they stop beating Paul. And Paul's taken in chains by the Roman soldiers and thrown into prison. And for the next five chapters, this begins a fascinating view into Roman politics in the book of Acts. Over the next two years, Paul remains in chains. He's never fully free. And he's never free because of two things. The first is this. The Jews refuse to stop wanting him dead. There's even a group that Luke tells us about that they take an oath, right? That they will not eat or drink until Paul is dead. I'm not thinking they kept that oath very long. 
But every single time Paul is moved to another city and another prison and another ruler to stand before another council, there's a contingent from these Jews in Jerusalem that travels there at their own expense to demand he be killed. The drive and commitment and intensity of their desire to see this man destroyed is breathtaking. They haven't hated anyone like this since Jesus. The second thing that's going on, that's occurring simultaneously, is that none of the Roman officials who Paul stands on trial before can figure out anything he's done wrong. Number one, they don't understand the Old Testament law, so their eyes immediately begin to glaze over when the Jews start demanding that Paul be killed. But number two, Paul hasn't done anything deserving death. And every single ruler he stands on trial before says so. But these Jews are so amped up and so committed to their hatred of Paul that they always fear a riot if they're going to release him. So he just gets shipped, hopped around from ruler to ruler, all the face trial after trial after trial, because no one can figure out what to do with him. But as we're going to see in Acts 26, this doesn't bother Paul a whole lot. Because what he's doing is he's taking advantage of every situation in the process of defending himself. He's really defending Jesus. In the process of standing before all these trials, he keeps fulfilling God's calling on his life. And it's masterful. And it comes to a head in Acts 26. The background of Acts 26 is there's a Roman governor by the name of Festus who had kept Paul in custody for some time. And right when Festus took over... Okay, he wanted to win the Jews over to his side for political gain. And so not knowing any of the backstory, he asked them, what's one favor I can do for you? You know, you kind of scratch my back, I'll scratch your back kind of deal. And the one request they said was bring Paul to Jerusalem so we can put him on trial here. Now what Festus didn't know was they weren't interested in a trial at all. All they wanted was to get Paul out of Roman custody back into theirs so they could kill him. So Festus, attempting to appease them, attempts to get Paul's trial moved back to Jerusalem, and Paul appeals to Caesar, which means as a Roman citizen, Paul could only stand trial before Rome. He could only be sent there if he was going to leave Festus' reign. Now Festus has got himself a problem. He's got to send Paul to Rome with a letter saying the crime he's accused of, and Festus has no idea what the crime is. He can't figure it out. He can't figure out what Paul has done or why this group of Jews want him dead so badly. So he gets a break when this king named Agrippa comes to visit. This king Agrippa is the king of Judah. He was the last king in the line of King Herod's family. So Jerusalem and many of the Jews were under King Agrippa's rule. So Festus was hoping that Agrippa could sort all this out for him. So in Acts 26, Paul is standing before those two men, Festus and Agrippa, to present his own defense. And Paul starts by this, I'm glad you're here, king. Consider myself fortunate to stand before you because you know our people, you know our laws, you know our customs, and I've done nothing against our people and our laws. And so Paul gives him his background. I grew up a good boy, good Jewish boy. I was a member even of our strictest sect, the Pharisees. I too opposed Jesus and everyone who believed in him. I put many Christians in prison. I ordered others to be killed. And he says this in Acts 26. He says, I was obsessed with destroying them. I even went to foreign cities to find them and arrest them. And then we pick up his defense in verse 12. So look with me at Acts 26 in verse 12. This is Paul speaking to King Agrippa and Festus. On one of the journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? 
I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. This is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I've had God's help to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. All right, like we said earlier, we've been going through Acts for six months. And if you were here with us when we got to Acts chapter 9, you remember this story happening to Paul. It's one of the biggest turning points in the book of Acts. When the church's greatest human enemy to that point becomes its greatest and most intense and effective spokesperson. Because while Paul is on his way to Damascus to torture more Christians, Jesus interrupts his journey, interrupts his life. And so let me break down for you in just a few sentences what, what Paul tells these men. He says, I too was a, was a Jew who hated Christians. But then I saw him. I saw him. You see, King, I saw the risen Jesus. And I couldn't unsee it. I was obedient to him. And now the Jews hate me for preaching about the very hope they've wanted themselves for centuries. For telling them that the Christ that they've waited on has indeed come. And the scriptures show us that the Christ must suffer and die and raise again. I'm teaching what they believe. They just don't know they've got it all wrong. At this point, the Roman governor Festus tells Paul he's insane. Paul responds by saying, I'm, I'm not insane. Everything I'm saying is true and reasonable. And the king knows all this to be true. It's all happened in his jurisdiction. And then I love this. He begins to try and convince King Agrippa to become a follower of Jesus on the spot. And look what the king says in verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Yes, king, you, but not just you. I want everyone in this room and everyone everywhere to know, to come to find and know what I've come to find and know. I want everyone to experience the life and hope and joy and peace of Jesus Christ. Paul has turned his trial, which is supposed to be his defense, into an opportunity to convince the king of Judea to believe in Christ. And it's in this chapter that we see his origins. But he wasn't just not a Christian before. He hated and attacked Christians. Put some in jail, ordered others to death. He was going everywhere to destroy those who claimed faith in Jesus. And think of where he is now. By Acts 26, he's planted more churches than can be tracked. He's had oversight over many more. He's instrumental in the gospel going to places and people that had never gone before. He had groups of people in multiple cities who've devoted their lives to killing him. He's been beaten more times than anyone else. He's been whipped five more. He has stood before Jewish councils, multiple Roman governors, the king of Judea, and he will eventually stand before Caesar himself, each time telling them the truth of Jesus. By the end of his life, he will have written the majority of the New Testament. Never has a life been changed more dramatically. Never has a life been turned around in such an intense way. Never has a life been more poured out for the kingdom of God. And right in the middle of this speech to King Agrippa, we see why. Why this immense change. Why this incredible turnaround. Why he was willing to do and endure all that he did. And it's so much simpler than we think. 
Look at verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. You want to know why I'm doing this, King? You want to know why I traveled the world, why I've endured ridiculed and beatings, why I'm risking my life for this? I saw Jesus alive. I simply was not disobedient to what I saw. See, King, Jesus was dead. We killed him. And I was obsessed with destroying the lives of those who claimed belief in him. And then I saw him alive and he spoke to me. And that's not supposed to change me. Last week on Easter, we, we celebrated the resurrection. A lot of times we assume that, that when Jesus' closest followers would discover him alive again, it would bring nothing but relief and joy. And don't get me wrong, there's going to be some of that eventually. But it's not just that. In fact, in the book of Mark, we're told that when the women discover that the tomb is empty and Jesus is risen, they had one reaction. They were terrified. And I would think so. Because in that moment, they realize that Jesus is no longer someone to admire even deeply. Because for the first time, they realize the power and authority they're dealing with. And for his disciples, his resurrection, yes, it would restore their hope. Yes, it would bring joy, especially in the wrong one. But it also make them take stock and ask some hard questions. What in the world does this mean for my life? And don't you see, to a man, they couldn't help but be changed. This is one of the strongest points of evidence that exists for the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he had 12 disciples. One betrayed him and took his own life. Another denied even ever knowing him. All but one of the others fled and abandoned him immediately. Best case scenario, John followed at a far distance, never speaking up in his defense. When Jesus died on the cross, he never owned property or home. He never ran for office. He never led an army. He had no money and no possessions. He had no earthly position of authority. And he was buried in a tomb. And then something happened. Something happened. Because from that Man, Christianity has exploded to every single corner of our world. And those weak-willed, half-committed, cowardly disciples, all of a sudden, they're different. We've gone through acts together. These men are bold. They're confident. They're unafraid. They stand before councils who threaten to kill them if they speak in the name of Jesus. And they say, do what you got to do, but we have to talk about what we've seen. Remember in Acts 1, they started with 120 followers isolated in a room. By Acts 26, where Paul is now, by the, with all the power and resources of the Jewish rule and Roman Empire against them, Christianity had spread to the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire, to the furthest reaches of the known world. And just like Paul, those men who, ad- who denied Jesus, who abandoned him, who were too afraid to speak up before the cross, all willingly suffered for him. Peter was crucified. John was thrown into a pot of boiling water. When it didn't kill him, they exiled him. It doesn't even begin to tell the stories of people like James. James was actually the half-brother of Jesus. And the gospel tells us why Jesus was alive and during his earthly ministry, James wouldn't believe that Jesus was God. Don't blame him. You wouldn't believe your brother was God either. But then after Jesus' death, he does a complete reversal. He actually writes one of the books of the New Testament. And the first line of the book, you know what he calls himself? A slave of Jesus. He too starts preaching that Jesus is God and was raised from the dead. And just like they did with Paul, the Jews wanted to put a stop to it. So they took him to the top of the temple and they threw him off. The fall was so far, it immediately broke both of his legs. And the mob surrounded him and told him they were going to let him live if he would just recant his story. Not only did he refuse, he started praying for them that on the spot they too would accept Jesus. So they grabbed clubs and they beat his face in until he died. Let me ask you, what what best explains all of this? 
What's the most rational explanation to that? That, that these disciples all created a hoax in order to gain notoriety and it just kind of got bigger than they thought? Or that they saw something that changed their lives forever, that they couldn't forget what they saw and it consumed them. Let me ask you, would you be willing to be beaten and suffer and tortured and die for a hoax? Would you sign up for suffering to spread a lie like Paul did? The most logical conclusion. And the truth is that these men were alive when Jesus died and it impacted them, but not nearly the impact it had when they saw him alive again. Because experiencing the resurrection changed them forever. You see, Jesus' resurrection is not just a thing to be celebrated on a holiday. It's not just our our greatest hope and guarantee of eternal life. It should be the greatest agent of change in your life. All throughout the New Testament, the books that these men wrote, you see things, you see these lines like, since Christ has been raised, or since you have been raised with Christ. And then these New Testament writers tell us how our lives should look different in response to that. 2 Corinthians 5 says that if you're in Christ, you're a brand new creation. Romans 6 says that you've been raised to walk in the newness of life. Colossians 3 says that you are to shed the old man and all of its sinful practices and put on the new man. Again and again and again we are told that the resurrection is not just a one-time event that grants us eternal life when we die. No, eternal life begins now and we are to live as people who are being resurrected. If Jesus is who he is, if Jesus suffered in torment and died for me, and after all that he walked out of the grave, it is no longer sufficient that I just go to church and pray over meals. It's no longer sufficient that I throw a few bucks in the offering and buy a Christian CD and speak in spiritual platitudes about God to other Christians. No, if I have experienced the resurrection of Jesus, and if he's in your heart, you have then that should change me in huge and impactful ways. You tell me, how is it possible to experience the resurrection and then not be able to worship without restraint? How is it possible to experience the resurrection and still be so focused on yourself all the time? How is it possible to actually experience the resurrection and withhold love from anyone, especially on the bounds of status or beliefs or race or nationality? How is it possible to experience the resurrection and not be marked by a peace and a joy that everyone can feel when they're around you? How is it possible to experience the resurrection and not endure suffering well for the name of Christ? How is it possible to experience the resurrection and still fear everything that comes our way? How's it possible to experience the resurrection and still get all of our priorities out of whack and give credence to lesser things than him? How's it possible to experience the resurrection and not surrender our entire lives to him? That it's no longer about advancing your career or your status or your home as much as it's about advancing his kingdom through your career and through your resources and through your home. Jesus Christ died in our place and he rose again. And for all who trust in him, he's not just sitting at the right hand of the Father, but he's everywhere. His spirit is at work all the time. He's taken up residence inside of you. Tell me, would you, what advantage exactly did Peter and Paul and John and James have that we don't? Jesus himself said in John 14, it's going to be better for us when he departs this earth physically Because his Holy Spirit will be able to be in so many places at once that physically he could not have been contained to a human body. 
Listen, we've experienced everything they've experienced. We have all the resources of heaven at our fingertips, just as they did. We simply need to live our lives as people who've actually experienced and are experiencing the resurrection. It didn't happen 2,000 years ago only. It's still happening in this room. It's still happening in your life and in your heart right now. Live in light of that. Walk in that freedom. Worship in that joy. Pray in that kind of power. Speak in that kind of boldness. Love in that kind of victory. Witness on that platform. And sure, God has not called you to the mission field he called Paul to. But that's because first century kings and governors and Gentiles and angry Jews aren't the only mission fields there are. Because Terre Haute's a mission field. And your neighborhood is a mission field. The coffee shop you go to, the factory that you work in, the hallways of your school, the athletic fields that you play or coach on, your best friend's living room, the aisles at the grocery store, the cubicle next to yours, the person that you're texting, anywhere there are people, anywhere that Jesus is present, which is everywhere, by the way, anywhere he places you is your mission field. So here's what we're called to do in light of the resurrection. Number one is simply just, just live for him. Don't just put on the label of Christian on top of your life. Don't put Jesus on a hat like a hat on top of everything else you do. Live a life that's infused by him, that he's a part of every single part of it. Start your day with him, end your day with him, and invite him to be a part of every second in between. Love, serve, give in response to him. Fill your life with things that draw your attention to and stir your affections for Jesus. See, whatever it is that makes you feel connected to him, music, people, uh, Bible studies, small groups, nature, solitude, quiet time, anything, discover what those things are and pursue them. Give them priority, uh, invest in them and protect them. And then just as importantly, figure out what robs your affections for Christ, what pushes you away from him, what leaves you further from him than you were, and then prayerfully and aggressively cut those things out of your life. And then number two, just make it your priority to build his kingdom, not yours. Matthew 6, Jesus is speaking and says that we are to seek first. That's a huge word. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Which means this. It means there are a lot of good goals for raising your kids. There are a lot of good goals for your career. There's a lot of good goals for your house. There are a lot of really good goals for your retirement. There are a lot of things that we can justify and even things we don't have to. But nothing, nothing, Jesus says, is to take precedence in the life of a believer than over building the kingdom of God. And here's what this means. It means that far more important than your child making the honor roll, far more important than him being the starting quarterback or or starting shortstop, far more important than exceeding in music competitions, far more important than any kind of scholarship he or she could get is that you have raised them and trained them to build the kingdom of God wherever they go. Which means that far more important than any kind of salary increase or promotion or career success or retirement planning is recognizing in your position and in your job, you have a platform to be a witness for Christ. It means that far more important than designing the perfect home or getting that newest car or collecting the latest technology is using your home and your resources to do or fund things that make an eternal difference. It means that no personal preference, no personal views, no matter, no matter nearly as much as people coming to know Jesus Christ, there's nothing that isn't sinful that we shouldn't swallow or endure in order to point others to him. 
Romans 6, 4 says this, that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of God the Father, we too may live a new life. When these men saw the risen Jesus, what they experienced, when they experienced the resurrection, they were simply never able to be the same again. Are you walking in the newness of life? First and foremost, just have, have you first ever surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you asked him to forgive you of your sins, to grant you eternal life in heaven when you die? Only he can do that. You trusted him with your eternity. If you haven't, man, do so today. But if you have, listen, this, this, is, this is the thrust of today. If you've done that, listen, please stop trusting Jesus only with your life after you die. Surrender to him your every day, your every moment, your every thought, your every attitude, your every action, your every purchase, your every decision. Surrender them to the risen Jesus as Lord and live and walk and breathe and give and pray and serve and act and build and uplift and embrace costs and love and the power of the resurrection. Walk in that power. God, if this is ever to be more than a holiday, if it's ever to be more than a Sunday that we just put on nice pastel clothes and sing a few songs and maybe wear a suit and look for eggs, but if it's ever to be more than that, we need to recognize that those who experienced your resurrection were never the same again. Father, you came for us. You died for us you bled and suffered in torment for us and then you walked out of the grave to tell us that eternal life can begin now you didn't do it to give us some sort of golden ticket that at the end of our life we get to go straight to paradise and that's just the end of it no you did it to impact every part of who we are in this moment so father i pray that if there's one in this room who's never surrendered to you God, they would trust you with their sins. They would trust you with their life. They'd ask you to come into their heart and take over their life right now. And God, for those of us who had, I pray that we would recognize the immensity of the resurrection. God, that you're not okay with being given an hour a week. You're not okay with being given portions of our time. You're not okay with us giving you little boxes of our lives. God, you've called us to walk in the newness of life. You've raised us to be new creations. If we've truly experienced the resurrection, Lord, we should never be the same again. So begin around this room now to show us how Jesus impacts our work, how he impacts our marriages, how he impacts our families, how he impacts our neighborhoods, how he impacts our budgets, how he impacts our lives. Lead us to surrender things to you now for the glory of him. And we pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.